We're going to look at Genesis 34 through 36. So I've taught the whole book of Genesis in one night before. I, I hopefully can do this as well. Um, so we're not going to be reading every verse here, so you're going to need to go back through. But this section ends um, what's called the Jacob cycle, um, kind of the events of Jacob's life. We'll see him again a couple of more times, but he really is not the focus of the author. The next focus is upon Joseph, one of his sons. So we are in this last section uh, as it relates to Joseph, uh, Jacob's life. Important lessons for us. We're going to see the corrupting influences of a godless culture and how to deal with that. We're going to see him fail to lead and then successfully lead his family. We're going to see the need for follow-through in our walk with the Lord and the importance of having a single heart of worship. These are the kind of important themes that come out. And the title of this study is just Back to Bethel. So let's pick up there in chapter 34. And as we move into chapter 34, you might want to just flip over into chapter 26 and, and look at, just re remind yourself of what was going on there. In that chapter, both Isaac and now in chapter 34, um, Jacob have an unpleasant interaction with the Canaanites. And they also both fail to protect their women. Now, in this scene here, it's not Leah or Rachel that's going to be unprotected, but it's actually going to be his daughter, Dina, that he leaves unprotected. And although the passage does not come out and explicitly state this, it is my conclusion, and everybody, I think most of the commentators I read, all concluded that he missed the mark to lead his family here. So you might want to go back through. But you know, it wasn't just Jacob and Isaac who failed to protect their women. It was also who else did fail to do this? Abraham failed to do this in Egypt. And then he did it with Abimelech. And then Isaac did it with Abimelech. And now here Jacob's going to do it with um, uh, Shechem. And um, it is a sad, sad story, chapter 34. Um, we'll see a, uh, in verse 1, it says, Now Dina, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the daughters of the land. And this really is a careless act. It's, it's a fellowship failure. She has no business going and being uh, engaged with these ladies, as we're going to see, these young ladies. We think she's about 14, 15, 16 years old. And um, we know quite well that the culture of the Canaanites was severely corrupt. How corrupt was it? Well, Sodom and Gomorrah happened. That gives you a little sense of how corrupt things were. And of course, we get, we're going to see this as we move through the Old Testament, that they were so corrupt. And God is just waiting and calling them to repentance, but they're not repenting, and eventually he's going to bring judgment upon them. So this is a carelessness on the part of Leah and Jacob with uh, their daughter Dina's social life. She is wanting to go and be with the daughters of the land. She should have, in this culture, in this day, from all the things that I read, that would have been expected that she would have had a chaperone in this culture and in this day. Now listen, this is not going to excuse the acts of Shechem where he ends up taking advantage of her. So we're not trying to place failure there. Um, it's not Jacob and Leah's fault that their daughter is going to end up being raped. That is a sin of a single individual. However, 
as parents, we have this job to raise our kids as best we can to follow the ways of the Lord and to protect them from things that would seek to defile them. The Bible is full of lessons on the corrupting influence of this world upon God's people. Samson knew something about the corrupting influence. And Delilah. Peter knew what it was like to follow at a distance on the night that Jesus was being arrested or was arrested. And he warmed himself in the fire in the courtyard of of the high priest among the enemy. And the next thing that we see him doing is denying the Lord three times. There is a verse that we are told to pay attention to. It starts with 1 Corinthians 15, It says, do not be deceived. And here's the deal. Anytime you find a verse that begins with or is, includes this idea of do not be deceived, you can be guaranteed that around the principle that's about to be laid down, there is a great deal of what? Deception. And that's why it's like, don't be deceived, because lots of people get deceived about this. That's, that's kind of the heart and the, the, the mindset. Well, what is it that he says? Evil company corrupts good habits. If you want to follow Jesus, if you want to have a high moral character, then you need to understand that if you spread yourself out among the evil influences of culture and society... And I don't mean just taking part in it, but this is where you go for your social life. This is, you know, what you do to try and find meaning and significance as a person in other relationships. Then that company is going to corrupt your good habits. And if you are saying, no, not me, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. Well, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, manage my kids. I don't want to, you know, have too much control over them. Why? Why don't you? Well, I just want them to make their own decisions. Okay, what if they don't want to brush their teeth for the next week? You okay with that? What if they want to wear, it's kind of in style now, so i got to come up with a new illustration, but two colored socks, you know, two different shoes. Are you going to let them do that? What, what if they decide they're never going to look anybody in the eyes and say hello and they'll never shake a hand? Are you going to correct them on that? Are you going to help them see the need to to greet somebody, to brush their teeth? Are you going to encourage them to actually take a bath? You know, say, oh, why don't you go take a bath or a shower? You know, and I want the water on when you do this, okay? These are the types of things, young parents, these are the types of instructions you have to give. I want you to go get clean. I want you to take a shower. Turn the water on. Get under it. (laughs) get soap, scrub it on your body, wash the soap off. I mean, these are all things. I mean, if you've had kids, you know your kids have gone in and come out dirty. They've gone in and they come, half their head's still full of soap. It's like, no, you've got to get that off. Okay, now dry yourself off. Your clothes will go on so much easier if you will dry your, we teach our kids how to do all of these things. You know, do good in sports, do good in band, work hard, you got a music recital, take the time to get involved and practice. Got to do, you got a test coming up. We, we're going to tell them and we're going to ask them to do good in all of those things. Why is it then when it comes to the most important thing we can ever teach our kids, and that is to walk in the fear of the Lord, that we're afraid to give them too much instruction? Think it through. Does not make sense. Instruct the kids. I'm not saying be mean and harsh and cram it down their throats. No. 
Let them see the love of Jesus in your life for the Lord and serving him and bring them along. We need to be mindful of the negative influences that are coming upon our children. And newsflash, the world is spending billions of dollars to try and influence our kids. They don't seem to think it's too much to try and influence your children. Don't you think that it's too much to try and influence your children? Persuade them in love and kindness and generosity, but with the truth of the Word of God. But it's not just our kids. It's our lives, too. It's our lives. Well, this allowing Dina to go out into the land and to spend time with the daughters and not having a chaperone is going to end up being such a tragedy. Verses 2 through 5. And when Shechem, the son of Hamar, the Hivite prince of the country, you might call him the pampered prince. He thinks he can have whatever he wants. He saw her. He took her and lay with her and violated her. His soul was strongly attracted to Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the young woman and spoke kindly to the young woman. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamar, saying, Get me this young woman as a wife. And Jacob heard that he had defiled Dina, his daughter. Now his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace. So tragic that a man would ever feel, or it could be any, a woman too, to go and take advantage of another person sexually, or in any other way. But in this case, it's this, it's this, I have sexual desires, therefore I'm going to gratify them, and I am willing to trample anybody and take advantage of anybody. And this is a, this is a, a criminal act that is taking place here. 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 6, though, gives all of us a reminder about how we are to conduct ourselves with each other in regards to sexuality. And you'll have to read the whole chapter to get the context, but it is talking about sexual purity. He says that no one should take advantage of and defraud his brother in this matter, because the Lord is the avenger of all such. Also we are forewarned, uh, also we forewarned you and testified. Should take advantage is a single Greek word, huperbino, and it means to transgress by going beyond proper limits in behavior, to trespass or sin. Defraud, from this verse, means to take advantage, exploit, outwit, and cheat. Defraud. And as it comes to this matter of sexuality, when you engage in sex with somebody outside of the confines of marriage, you are taking advantage of them and you are defrauding them. No, we're in love. Call it what you will. Here's the verse you got to deal with. The Bible calls us to respect with one another and regard one another. And inside of Christian relationships especially, we should have this awareness that I would not want to destroy the work of Christ in your life and you would not want to destroy the work of Christ in my life. So we walk in sexual purity because this is what the Lord calls us to. Yes, it's, it's different in the sense that uh, Shechem is, a, uh, is committing a criminal, violent act. But still, we are never to take advantage of one another. And he does not seem to understand that. He feels like he can have whatever he wants. And it's going to cause great pain is going to come upon his people because of this act. Verses 6 through 12, his father responds. And Hamar seeks to make a marriage um, with Dina and Shechem, 
and then also an alliance among their peoples. And so in verses 6 through 12, he comes to Jacob and he talks about the advantages of, of, of joining together. If we share our children with each other and we share the land together, you can have a piece of this land. He's essentially offering him citizenship there among the Shechemites. And, and he is saying, hey, it's going to be a material blessing. It's going to be a relational blessing. But here's the problem. This is an attempt to undermine the Abrahamic covenant that says that the, these people should be separate. And we've seen that as they go back to Pat and Moran over and over to, to find their wives. And that God is the one that would give them the blessing. God is the one that would produce this benefit in their life. But you see in verse 10, it says, So you shall dwell with us, and the land shall be before you. In other words, it's yours. Dwell and trade in it. Acquire possessions for yourself in it. I, this is going to be advantageous. It is a temptation in the midst of this situation. They've come close. They're living among the Canaanites. Now a daughter's been taken advantage of. And if they walk down this path of making an alliance, the entire family is going to be taken advantage of. And it is going to be a problem. But a material enticement is put out there in front of them. One author says, This offer was an offer of free state citizenship, something that the nomads of this period, which Jacob and his family were, wanted badly. Ancient records show that the land of Canaan was compromised of city-states with nomads around the periphery who hoped to become citizens of these city-states. Um, Lot was one of those nomads who found citizenship. It didn't work out well for him. And now here the offering is again. So this offer comes to him. In verses 13 through 29, um, Simeon and Levi, the uh, full brothers of uh, Dina, come back and they find out what's going on. And they go and they end up deceiving uh, the Shechemites. They come up with this plot. And we see there... Uh, to their offer in verse 14. It says, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised. So they're, they're appealing to the Abrahamic covenant, but not for spiritual reasons. This is not a witnessing opportunity for them. This is, we're going to get you vulnerable. We're going to get you weak. We're going to get you in pain. And we're going to use our religion to do that, our relationship, the sign of our, our, our connection with God, and then we're going to kill you. I mean, it is a treacherous act. You know, one thing that is really clear so far, even in the first chapter or book of the Bible, is that Scripture does not hide the failures of the people of God. I mean, they're there. You see them. And this is, this is a, a treacherous act that they're going to engage in. Um, but they say in verse 17, If you will not heed us and be circumcised, and we will take our daughter... And be gone. Now you may be thinking, why are the, the, the sons you know, doing the negotiation? Well, this was something that was common. Remember when um, Abraham had sent his servant to Paddan Aran and he began to talk that he spoke with Laban, not the father, in getting Rebekah. And now we see it again that the, they're the ones in negotiation. But it also might be that Dina is Leah's child and we already have seen the favoritism we're going to continue to see it and so maybe this is like if we don't stand up for our sister Jacob's not going to stand up for her we're not the favored family we're not the they're not the favored children 
So they go, they make this, uh, this, you know, I guess rebuttal to their offer and says, this is what you have to do. And um, so, <laughs> verse 24, And all who went out of the gate of the city, city heeded Hamar and Shechem his son. Every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. And so they agree, all right, we'll join together because Hamar is selling this on both sides. It's going to be advantageous to you, Jacob, and then to his own people. This is going to be a blessing. Look at all the stuff they have. We're going to become wealthy. And so they agreed to the circumcision. And, um, and then, therefore, Shechem is going to be able to take Dina as his wife. Um, it's um, it's a, a strange situation for sure. Verses 25 and 29, though, we see what the true intention were of Simeon and Levi, and that was to brutalize the Shechemites. Now it came to pass on the third day when they were in pain that two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, uh, Simeon and Levi, Dina's brothers, each took his sword and came boldly upon the city and killed all the males. So they were so weak, they were in so much pain, they could not get up and fight. And, and they killed Hamar, and Shechem his son with the edge of the sword and took Dina from Shechem's house and went out. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because their sister had been defiled. They took their sheep, their oxen, and their donkeys, what was in the city and what was in the field, and all their wealth and all their little ones and their wives they took captive and they plundered even all that was in the houses. So, these guys, they understand that something must be done for what has happened. There, there, there must be a retribution for what took place. Jacob doesn't seem to be stepping up to the plate. He seems to be kind of uninterested in the whole thing. And so these young guys step up, maybe in their early 20s, and they come to the defense of their sister, Dina, again, 14, 15, 16 years old. And they, they are right in one sense that something needs to be done about this. But boy, what they choose to do and kill so many innocent people and create so much harm was way out of line. And so in verses 30 through 31, Jacob rebukes them. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have troubled me by making me obnoxious among the inhabitants of the land among the Canaanites and the Perizzites. And since I am few in number, they will gather themselves together against me and kill me. I shall be destroyed, my household and I. But they said, should he treat our sister like a harlot? And so you can see the, the, the tense feelings in the family. You did not come to the defense of her. Had Jacob taken some leadership, and there was plenty of things that could have been done, in that culture and in that time, maybe this could have been avoided. But the problem is they're in Canaan and they're among the Canaanites and they are becoming dull in their spiritual senses. And Jacob, I mean, it's just, it's a disappointment really all over again that he does this. And really when you read verses 30, when you read verse 30, it's like, who do you, who do you care about, Jacob? We've not heard a single bit of uh, of remorse or, or sorrow, I should say, over what has happened to his daughter. The only thing he seems to be caring about is the well-being of the entire family and his possessions. But it, it seems very self-seeking and serving. And so he becomes fearful 
of retaliation. And so this whole venture to go uh, to Shechem has turned out to be a nightmare. Here in chapter 34, we do not find the mention of God once. But as we move into chapter 35 and then you go back to Bethel, Bethel means the house of God. Bethel is where he encountered the presence of the Lord when he was leaving, I guess probably some 30 years earlier, when he was leaving and fleeing from his brother Esau. And he fell asleep and he saw the heaven open and he saw this access into heaven and God said, I'm going to take care of you, I'm going to protect you. And he sleeps on that, sets up that pillar um, as a... As, um, you know, a reminder of the presence of God, and he makes a vow, and he says, I'm going to worship you. I'm going to come back to this place. I'm going to pay a tithe. And now the Lord, as we move into chapter 35, is going to tell him to go back to this place. And in contrast, in chapter 35, we're going to, mention, we're going to see the name of the Lord mentioned 10 times. And I don't think it's an accident. I don't think it's just a literary, oh, well, they just didn't say that. I think it's to show in chapter 34 there's compromise. They're among the Canaanites. The Lord is not the focus. So back to Bethel. He had gone through this sea, this place, and now he has come back. Uh, this is where he should have come back right after his encounter with Esau. Right after he met with Esau and they got reconciled and Esau says, come with me. Jacob should have said, Brother, listen, let me tell you what happened at Bethel. This is what happened. I made a vow to the Lord. I have got to go back there. I cannot go and dwell with you. We know how we get along. Distance between us is probably a, a, not a terrible thing. We'll keep the relationship, but I've got to go and I've got to worship at Bethel. I can't go anywhere else. But instead he deceives his brother, and that little bit of deception leads to him then going among the Canaanites where he sees all kinds of compromise taking place. And we'll even see more of the compromise that was picked up in chapter 34 as we make our way through chapter 35. But you know, his return there is something that Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. Remember in the book of Revelation? And he, he rebukes them. They have so many things that they've done right. But he says that they had does he say that they had lost their first love or they had left their first love? What does it say? They left. That word left in certain contexts can be translated divorce. You've left me. You've abandoned me. Now, they were doing a lot of good things on the outside. They had a, you know, they were the church that had been established um, and had great men that had come through. Apollos had been through. Paul had been through there. John had been through there. Timothy had been through there. That's not a bad lineup of pastors, is it? And yet they have left their first love. They didn't lose it. They walked away from it. And the Lord calls them back. He says, repent and do the first works. And that's kind of what we see happening here. The Lord is saying to Jacob, repent, come to Bethel, come back to that place of worship of me. Warren Worsby writes, the good news of the gospel is that we don't have to stay the way we are. No matter how many times we've failed the Lord, we can go home again if we truly repent and obey. Maybe you are in Shechem right now, but you know you want to be at Bethel. You want to be in that place of communion where the Lord is a priority in your life. You can come back. And if you're thinking, no, no, no. I'm sure God doesn't want anything more to do with me. 
Well, then what, how do we interpret the life of Jacob? How do we look at this guy who makes mistake after mistake, but God continues to show favor and kindness? He is inviting him into the place of communion and fellowship. And if you're here, you're thinking, God wants no more to do with me. I'm just here because my wife wants me here. I'm just here because my husband, because my parents want me here. I don't even know why I'm here, but I know God doesn't want me. That is not what the Bible says. That is not what Jesus says. Jesus invites all those that are weary and heavy laden. He says, come and I will give you rest. Are you tired out living in Shechem? You're tied out living in, among the world and in all the pain and all the trouble it brings into your life. Then come back to Bethel. Come back to the place of communion and fellowship with God. You're like, come back. I've never been there. Well, then come. Jesus is calling you into a relationship with him this morning. If you know that you need to come to Jesus and you can feel the moving of the Spirit of God on your heart this morning that says, get it right with God. Understand. Please understand this. That is not because of anything I am saying. That is not because you are always been kind of a spiritual person. That is because at this very moment, the spirit of the living God is speaking to you and he is drawing you, you, unto himself. Don't think lightly of that. He cares about you. The need to be fully obedient. Again, he had missed um, the opportunity to go there. He doesn't, and he gets off into compromise, and now he's going to come back. In verse 2, Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, purify yourselves, and change your garments. So verse 2 tells us a little bit more of what was going on living among the Canaanites. Now we know Rachel had stole their household gods. Some say these are the same gods. Some say they're different. I don't know. Whatever it is, there are gods that they are worshiping, figurines, right? Little idols. And Jacob says, all right, we're done with this stuff. He calls the family to undivided worship. We're not going to worship the gods of the Canaanites and, and worship the God of our father Abraham. That's not what we're going to do. We're going to be completely sold out for him. You, you look at chapter 34, and you're so disappointed. The end of 33, you're disappointed in Jacob. But this is one of those moments where Jacob does well again. He's made all kinds of mistakes as the leader of the family and not taking his family into the presence of the Lord, to the house of the Lord, to Bethel. But he's getting it right now. And that's really all any of us can do. Maybe we've missed the mark. We haven't done all that we know that we should as leaders of our family, as moms, as dads. But you know you need to. Well, listen, call your family to undivided worship. We're not going to have other gods. We're not going to walk in compromise. We're going to purify ourselves. We're going to set ourselves apart for the Holy One. And we're going to change our garments the Bible has a lot to say about the changing of garments. It becomes a metaphor for putting off the old way of living and putting on the new way of living. Putting off the clothes of unrighteousness and putting on the clothes of righteousness. But here's the thing. The Lord is the one that buys the clothes and gives them to you and dresses you. Because you can't do it on your own. So this was a, a picture of them getting clean and, and coming before the Lord because they're going to worship him. In verse 3, Jacob rehearses the goodness of God. 
Then let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an altar there to God, who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So he's fearful. Remember, uh, you know, I'm, I'm obnoxious to the people. They're going to kill us all. And so he comes to the Lord. You know, our, our mindset, and even legalism would, would say this, you've got to go clean yourself up a little bit before you get things right. Hey, you need to go, um, Jacob, and you need to do something good. You can't just come rolling back into Bethel and then just ask the Lord to take care of you and protect you. You've created a problem. Go get it right and then come to the Lord. But the Lord never does that. He just calls us to come to him. And so he rehearses the goodness of God over his life. Think of all the Lord has done for you. Think of how he has redeemed you and he has saved you. Think of the times in which he has got you out of a terrible mess. Only for you to return. And then he is faithful when you truly repent to do that again. He rehearses the goodness of God. And his family needs to hear this. They need to hear him talking about the great things that God has done in his life. Mom and dad, your kids need to hear you talking about the great things that God has done in your life. Well, they don't, they don't believe in the Lord. So what? You don't have to you know, pin them down. Just be one that gives credit and praise and glory to the Lord. And let them know that the blessings that are in your life have come from the hand of the Lord. They need to hear your praise. They need to hear your worship. They don't need to hear the complaining. They don't need to hear the, where is God? And this is so detrimental to our, the faith of our children. When we begin to question God in front of them, we need to be those that rehearse the goodness of God. You may not understand the course and the path that your life has been on, but God is still good. And you may have to wait till your life is over to see the faithfulness and the goodness of God. You've been called to walk by faith, not by sight. Well, God is good. And you have the cross, you have Calvary to tell you that he is good. Verses 4 through 7, they remove the idols, they're obedient to dad. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears. So something that the earrings maybe would have been you know, marked in some way where their ear, the idea is that their earrings would be marked and it would be a way of like, I want to hear what the God has to say to me. So this is it's not just get rid of jewelry time. It's like getting rid of the things that are associated with foreign worship. And Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree, which was by Shechem. So they got rid of this stuff and they journeyed and the terror of God was upon the cities that were all around them and they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. So Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, and he and all the people were with him, and he built an altar there, and he called the place El Bethel, because there God had appeared to him when he had fled from the face of his brother. See the, kind of the this theme here? He's fearful, and he's running from his brother. He's fearful from the Canaanites, and he runs to the Lord. He's fearful of Esau, and he runs to the Lord. I know if there's fear in your life, you're not going to figure it out at 2 a.m. But you can run to the Lord. You can take it to him and lay it down. He has called you to do that. He's called me to do that. So they, they get rid of the gods. They, they travel over um, to Bethel. Um, not a very long journey, really. Not very far away. 
Uh, and sadly, this is not the last time that Israel is going to have idols in their midst. In verse 8, we, we see Rebekah's uh, nurse, Deborah. She dies and they bury her. Verses 9 through 15, though, look how quick the Lord is to come to Jacob. The Lord affirms the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob, not because he deserves it, but because it's God's grace. Then God appeared to Jacob again when he, had, when he came from Paddan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, your name shall not be Jacob anymore, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. Also God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall proceed from you, and kings shall come from your body. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac I give to you. You don't need Hamar to give you anything. You don't need anything from this world. I will give you what you need. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to make you great descendants. You're going to have a citizenship. You're going to have your own property, Jacob. Don't worry about it. The land which I gave Abraham and Isaac, I give to you and your descendants after you. I give this land. Then Jacob went up from him in the place where he talked with him. So Jacob, verse 14, look at this. So Jacob set up a pillar, a stone, in the place where he talked with him, a pillar of stone, and he poured a drink offering, wine on it, and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke to him, with him, Bethel. He's communing with the Lord. You know what all of us need? <laughs> Troy Warner and you, my family, you know what all of us need? We need to commune with God. We need to speak with the Lord. We need to hear his voice. We need to hear his words of grace. We need to hear him call us back to Bethel. We need to hear him say, hey, set those things aside. And if there's compromise in your life, if you've grabbed hold of the things of the world, it's probably not a figurine, but it is a pursuit. It's a ism. It's, it's, a, it's a mentality that you've grabbed onto. And you know it's in contradiction with what the Lord wants from your life. Let it go. Yeah, but I'm afraid what's going to happen. You know, what you need to be afraid of is holding on to it, not letting it go. You're withholding the grace of God that he wants to pour out upon you. The pillar, again, he sets it up a second time. First time when he was on the way out of the country and he had that dream. It's a stone of remembrance. This is where I met with God. It's not holy. It just it, it, it signifies a holy encounter. And all of us have those holy encounters we had with God throughout our lives. And you can think back to a camp or to a sermon or a time where you're down on your knees or a time when you're on a walk with the Lord or maybe it was a desperate trial and God met and you, you recall that encounter. It is good to have those encounters with God memorialized. And then he pours oil on it and he pours a drink offering or he pours wine on, upon, on it. A drink offering was symbolic of the worshiper being poured out in dedication to God. As he's pouring out the wine onto this pillar, which represents his encounter with God, symbolically what he is saying is, I am now yours. I will be dedicated to you, and I will be poured out on the, on the purposes you have for my life. I'm not going to do it my way anymore, Lord. I'm going to do it your way. Philippians 2.17, Paul says, Yes, and if I'm being poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. I'm glad to be emptied out. I'm glad to be drained 
in serving you on behalf of Christ, Paul says. Boy, may we all just recapture that heart of service and attitude where it's dedication. I'm poured out. Nobody twisted your arm to follow Jesus. If you have followed the Lord, then you're responding to the, his call on your life of your own free will. You're responding. And nobody made you do this. But the response is, and come out this coming Wednesday night as we read Luke chapter 14, what it means to be a disciple. You said you were going to follow him. I said I was going to follow him. That was our hearts cry in response to the grace of the Lord. Just a little side note. And I, I put this in the category of interesting. It's not dogmatic. It's like, hmm, interesting. Where does this idea of setting up the pillar come from? There are pillars all throughout the, the Middle East. The pagans did this, but we also see the people of God did this. Why is this and what is going on? Well, one um, archaeological discovery that has happened recently in the city of David uh, by an archaeologist by the name of Eli Shukran. Um, and those of you that are going to Israel with us in March, he's, he's going to be our tour guide. So maybe we'll get to go down into this place. It's not open to the public, but he can get us down there because it's his discovery. But what he says, he's found this little temple. And I mean, when I say little, I mean like, okay, maybe as wide as this small stage. And I don't know, maybe twice as big. It's small and there's like little chambers in it. And in, in one chamber, there's a place where the pillar, there's a pillar, there's a, a stone that is there. It's, 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 you know, this big by that big. It's there, and then there's a place where you can see there were sacrifices were made and channels for the blood to roll out, uh, to, to go out. There's a, there's a wine press, a mini wine press, and there's an olive press in these places. There's a place where they could sacrifice animals. They had some tripod footings. And so he is of the belief, it's his belief, and he's one of the foremost archaeologists there, that what this is, is it's the temple of Melchizedek. And his theory, and it is just a theory, is that we know that Melchizedek was a high priest of God in the city of Salem, Jerusalem. And that's where this is. The timing of it is that time frame. And so this is his theory. This is his idea. But his, the point that he likes to make is, how did Jacob know to set up a pillar, anoint it with oil, and pour out a drink offering on it? His belief is because Melchizedek was doing it, and Melchizedek and Jacob would have been alive at the same time. Of course, Abraham, well, that story would have passed down, and that he was a priest of the Most High God, and this was how the early worship of the one true and living God was taking place. That may be true. That may not be true. So I thought I would just put it out there because it is interesting for consideration. But he is dedicated to the Lord. He has heard the Abrahamic covenant restored to him, and he says, all right, I'm going to be all in, Lord. In verses 16 through 20, um, his beloved wife, Rachel, passes away in childbirth. She wants to name her son, verse 18, Ben-Oni, Ben being son, and that means, um, uh, you know, son of her pain, son of sorrow. Um, and Jacob says, no, 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 we're going to call him Ben-Jamin, which is son of my right hand, a son of honor. And so Rachel died and she was buried. 
And um, Jacob set up a pillar on her grave, not a worship act, but just, again, a way to memorialize something, mark something. Benjamin um, has two notable descendants. You could probably come up with more, but one of them is the first king of Israel. It's King Saul. And in the New Testament, who is the notable descendant of Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin? Paul the Apostle comes from this man. And, of course, we, we know all the work that he did for the Lord. So, interesting note, Rachel is not buried at Machpelah, where the other patriarchs and their wives are. Um, but Leah is going to be buried in Machpelah. But Rachel has her own place. Verses 21 through 22, the bad news continues. Uh, Reuben defrauds Jacob as, as uh, Rachel... Oh, verse uh, 21, then they, Israel journeyed and pitched his tent toward the uh, eater. And it happened when Israel dwelt in the land that Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And Israel heard about it. Now the sons of Jacob were 12. This is both a sexual sin, but it is also a way of saying, I'm going to take over things now. Remember when a king would pass away, he would often go and take the concubines of that king and go into them, and that was a way of saying, I'm in charge now. Jacob continues to experience the deception of his children, a deception that he had walked in, and now his sons, Simeon and Levi, de- deceive the Shechemites, and now his own son defrauds him. In verses 23 through 26, you get a summary of Jacob's descendants, the children. We've talked about them before. And then in verses 27 through 29, Isaac, his father, dies. At 180 years old, Jacob and Esau come together to bury him. It was some 35 years earlier that Isaac said, I'm about to die, Esau. Go get me some game from the field so that I can eat this and die. Three and a half decades later, he's still kicking and he finally passes away. Don't give up. <laughs> you know, you don't know how long you're going to live. You don't know how long. You're... Keep serving the Lord. Keep on pressing on. Press on till the end. Chapter 36, it's a, a genealogy that I am not going to read of Esau and his descendants. The descendants of Esau are going to be mentioned 200 times in Scripture. They're going to become one of the fiercest enemies of the nation of Israel. And they're going to battle back and forth. And the, the battle began in the womb, right? There's two wars. Uh, there's two nations in you, and they are warring. They, they, begin, they continue to fight. When Israel comes out of the land of Egypt and the Exodus, they're going to be there to fight them. When Jesus um, was born, there was an Edomite named Herod, a descendant of the Edomites who tried to wipe out the children of Israel. There's a long history. You can do a great study on just the animosity between Israel and the Edomites, and it goes through the entire Old Testament, and um, really, you could say even up until the last days. So I'll leave that for you to read. But there's some challenging things in here. We need to come out and be separate. This is the call. All right, 2 Corinthians 6, verse 17. Come out and be separate. This is what is... God says to Jacob, and he takes his family out, Mom, Dad, be courageous and lead your families. Lead your families in the things of the Lord. That doesn't mean they're always going to do it. Rebellion can happen, 
But as far as it lies with you, seek to lead your family in the ways of the Lord. And I know there are some heavy hearts and there are some broken hearts because some of you have done just that. And yet your kids are not walking with the Lord today. I don't want you to feel ashamed. I don't want you to be, I'm not I'm trying to heap guilt on you. Listen, none of us are perfect parents, okay? That is a fact. And if you raise your kids in the ways of the Lord and they have turned away, that is their responsibility. But you can keep praying and you can keep interceding. And I want to do that in just a moment. But you've got to lead your family. You have small kids. Young parents um, can easily be so on fire in leading their kids through the early years and through the you know, grammar school years, but then things get busy in the teen years. And I have seen this happen over the 26 years I've been pastoring here and then even the years when I was a youth pastor, that parents take their hands off the wheel during the years of the teens. Uh, the teens, don't, don't do that. You need to double down. You gotta be more involved in their life. Not hounding them, loving them and modeling and rejoicing in the ways of the Lord, letting them experience what it is to follow the Lord. And, you know, maybe you're one of those teens. Maybe you're one of those that you've walked away and your parents are calling you. Or maybe you're a wife or a husband that's walked away. Come back. Look how Jacob's children follow him. They do follow him, and it is a good thing. And we must follow through on the devotion and worship the Lord has called us to. And so back to Bethel, back to the house of God where worship takes place. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word and your truth. And Lord, we can, we can relate. This is not a hard story to wrap our mind around. We know what it's like to be in a fallen culture and to live in Shechem and to feel that influence and to see it impacting those around us whom we love. But Lord, we also know of your voice that says, come to my house. Come commune with me. Come worship. And Lord, we agree that that is what needs to happen.